the bigger it grew, I never ever counted money because money was never ever the focus or the primary driver. But I did start to count how many plastic bottles we were preventing from going into the oceans. And that was the big driver. That was a big motivator. In the warehouse, I'd look at cases and cases and cases and pallets of these bottles and think, wow, this is metals. They're going to use these for years and years and years. This is not plastic. For like every one of these pallets, there's hundred pallets that are not getting produced in plastic single-use bottles. How awesome is this? So that kept me going also. Welcome to the Midland Money Mindset. This is a podcast that's all about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. In every episode, we go deep with engaging guests who provide tangible takeaways and a whole lot of joy along the way. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I enjoyed having them. Let's dive into today's show. I'm Larry Sprung, your host for the Midland Money Mindset and founder and wealth advisor of Midland Financial. Today's guest is Travis Rossback, founder of the Tumalo Group. Founding the Tumalo Group is one of the most outstanding accomplishments for Captain Rossback to date. This group is associated with the enhancement of new inventor and entrepreneur business production. The Tumalo Group utilizes a list of trusted and experienced manufacturers from around the world for responsible partnerships between businesses and manufacturers. The Tumalo Group remains a highly successful and beneficial resource for all new inventors and entrepreneurs for product, price, and timeline. Captain Rossback has spent the last 30 years studying and practicing all things business and the previous 10 years as an advisor, consultant, public speaker, and business coach to a wide range of industries, celebrities, individuals, and even countries. He not only shares his tradecraft with others, but also practices it in the many startups he's currently involved in. Travis is most well-known as the founder of Hydroflask, but has also been involved with many other highly successful business endeavors. Prior to entrepreneurship, Mr. Rossback was a scuba dive master instructor, U.S. Merchant Marine boat captain, commercial airline pilot, and was and is a world explorer. Listen in for some great takeaways about entrepreneurship, mindset, and what it takes to build a billion-dollar brand. Well, hello, everybody. Larry Sprung here, and I have the awesome pleasure of being here with Travis Rossback, founder of the Tumalo Group and well-known as the founder of Hydroflask. Thanks for joining us today, Travis. Larry, thanks for having me. This is awesome. Yeah. So listen, we know a little bit about your path because I just gave it away a little bit, but can you tell us about your path and give our listeners an idea of how you got to where you are today as the founder of the Tumalo Group? How'd you get here? Well, it's been a rocky road, but I started out in Salem, Oregon, and I graduated high school just barely. I kind of negotiated my way out of high school. Took off down to the U.S. Virgin Islands. I met my dad when I was 14, and he had some scuba diving shops down in St. Croix. And when I was 18, just graduated, took off down there, became a dive master, scuba dive instructor, went on to get my 50-ton U.S. Merchant Marine boat captain's license, Pilot's license after that, started flying for Seaborne Airlines, moved up to Florida, became a jet charter pilot, moved up to Oregon, 
and started a fence company, went out to Oahu, started a signs and screen printing company, <laughs> and then started Hydro Flask, double wall vacuum insulated stainless steel water bottle factory. Tried to be retired for a while. That didn't work so well. Started the Tumlo Group, which is where we are today. <laughs> Amazing. So long and windy path. And there is a reason why they call you Captain Rossback, right? I actually have a certificate that has my name that says Captain. Yeah, next to it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't That's have amazing. fancy letters after my name, but I do have one before. So I take all I can get. <laughs> yeah. And you've been boat captain and you've also flown, correct? Yes. Yep. So which mode of transportation do you enjoy more? I would say it's kind of time and space dependent, but I really enjoy <laughs> flying jets. Like I really have fun just going fast and up really high. And yeah, I enjoy going fast. Amazing. Amazing. So tell our listeners about the Tumalo Group and what's going on now. I think it's a really good place to start. What is Tumalo Group all about? Well, I started the Tumalo Group to help people who asked for it. I had a lot of people after Hydroflask who were saying, hey, how do I do that? And when I started to kind of break it down into micro-specific bite-sized chunks, I found that a lot of it has to do with sourcing, finding the right factories that you can trust and really rely upon and have a good long-term working relationship with. So a lot of what we do at the Tumalo Group is help with sourcing factories. We work with Mexico, a fair bit in America. We're hopefully going to get be getting back on that track here before too awfully long. Mm-hmm. We do still work with China. I mean, China still by and large is the number one factory country in the world right now. So we do that. I also do a lot of advising, the Tumalo Group. We do a lot of advising with any kind of business, pretty much any size from back of the napkin, back of the envelope concept stage, all the way up through fortune, whatever number they are. What's the goal? So, I mean, is it really just dependent upon the entrepreneur and the business, what they're looking to get out of it? Or are you really focusing on trying to work with entrepreneurs and businesses that are either back of the napkin or even a few million dollars and get them to scale to the size of a hydro flask? Is that ultimately the goal? That seems to be the goal. Yeah, everybody wants to have the next hydro flask, it feels like, or at least that size business. And that can be, yes, we do a lot of conceptualization all the way through producing the prototypes and producing the product and doing the first minimum order quantity and getting those first orders in. We do that quite a bit. We also work with companies here in America that are producing overseas and that are looking to bring their manufacturing closer to home. So we work with those companies also. And or the larger corporations, we're starting to work more and more with to sort of remind them of who their fan bases are and who the common people are and how to get them back in touch with our reality, not just the corporate life reality. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally does. Totally (laughs) does. And I think you'll probably have some people contacting you as a result of this for sure, because there are a lot of our listeners that are in those needs for sure. And I think a lot of them have a tendency to somewhat fly blind or self-educated, and they haven't been able to get educated by somebody who's been there, done that. And obviously you have, and that knowledge can transfer very easily and nicely and help them scale that much more quickly, I would imagine. 
You're absolutely right, Larry. Yeah, I never had the benefit of having a mentor. And so that's kind of how I see myself now is now that I've been there, done that, and then repeatedly, now I'm able to be that mentor that I never had. Right. Yeah. Let's shift gears for a second. When we discussed how you got to where you are today, there were a number of different things that you had done along the way, signs, fencing, hydro flask. How did you know, or did you ever know, that you had the right idea. How did you know that? For the Tumala group or Hydroflask? Which part? You've done a number of different things along the way, right? Yeah. You said you were in fencing and signage. So in general, yeah, I think it just kind of hits me. A lot of times, I don't know where it comes from, but I feel like it comes in from the back of my head, back right side of my head, and it just kind of comes out my mouth. This is it. (laughs) This is me. This is what I'm doing. This is what is taking place. This is how it's going to go from here on out. And whatever that is, it it gives me a hyper focus. And I kind of put my blinders on, I put my head down and I charge real hard for about four or five years and work really hard and diligently at getting whatever that task is accomplished. And then I kind of start to get a little burnt out, a little bit bored and a little bit shiny object, entrepreneurial conundrum founders thing going where I'm ready to go do something else. And so I typically go through a transitional period of, dang, what am I doing? What's going on? And then it hits again. And it's like, oh, here it is. Here's what I'm doing. And I don't know. So I don't really know how to answer that. I guess it's just kind of a calling that I get. So is it almost like you come up with an idea that you're really passionate about and you just more or less make it the right idea? Meaning you're because of that hyper-focused and the push and the drive, Basically, you could essentially think of anything. Obviously, not everything is going to make it from the back of the head to the mouth where you're going to say it. But those that do, I mean, is it just one of those situations where there's so much drive and passion behind it that you just make it happen and make it the right idea? Yes. Yeah. It becomes all encompassing. Like it really takes over. Like when I became a pilot, I first became, I heard, you are a pilot. Okay. I'm a pilot. So I had to learn what does that mean to be a pilot? Well, yeah, sure. There's the flying aspect, but that was kind of an ancillary thing. I was a pilot that just so happened to also learn how to fly airplanes later on, but I learned how to first become an airline pilot. And I think that that was kind of one of my keys to success with flying was that I became a pilot first and I walked and talked and dressed and acted and hung out with and around pilots. And the people who were learning to fly, those were student pilots. They were pilots in training, but I was already a pilot. I was flying the airplanes in training. And so by the time I got done with all my licenses, in my mind, I'd already been a pilot for years and years and years. And so when I went to the airlines, it was very natural for me to start flying for the airlines because, well, hell, I'm a pilot. It becomes all encompassing. Same thing with the dive instructor. Like, how do I go from being a dive master to a dive instructor? emulate the dive instructors. I study the dive instructors. I see what they do differently from the dive masters. And then it just was very natural when I passed my instructor license, you know, rating. Is that one of those things that you kind of employ and teach through the Tumalo group to those people that are looking to take their companies to the next level or create something from paper to an actual idea? That's a dang good question. It's hard to teach passion, I've found. And so I think what we do at the Tumala Group instead is we kind of back up a step and we, as we're interviewing and as we're getting to know and 
learn all about the people and the companies and the potential clients, we listen for that passion. We listen for what is their why? Are they just doing this to make money? Are they doing this to save the planet? Are they doing this because they have to do it and they're going to lose everything if they don't? Or are they doing this because they don't exactly know why, but man, it's calling them and it's pulling them and it's pushing them and they can't eat, they can't sleep, they can't think about anything else other than this. And if that's the kind of passion we find, then they usually make a great client. Amazing. Amazing. So I got to ask you, my understanding is you basically turned $11,000 into a billion dollar brand. (laughs) So how does that happen? I mean, is it just this passion that you're speaking of? What are some of those keys to success to get you from point A, $11,000 to point B, a billion dollar brand? We got to give our listeners some free jewelry here. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) It was a lot of work and we had a lot of help. It wasn't a one-man show by any means. We had fantastic graphic designers and CFO finally came on and was a big help. There were a lot of moving pieces. There was a lot of late nights and early mornings. I put a lot of heart and soul into it. It really became truly all-encompassing. And I basically turned off my entire life other than Hydroflask for about five years and really put the blinders on and got the tunnel vision and just picked water bottles as my lane. And that was the direction I went. And as I went, others came along and saw the vision and drank the Kool-Aid and they joined and helped us. And it just started growing and growing and growing and it took off like wildfire. How much of the success do you think? Well, obviously, a great deal of it has to do with you being the visionary here and putting in those hours, the time, the effort, the energy. How much of it is really due to the team that you put in place and those people that agreed with and had confidence and faith in the vision that you kind of created for them? That's a tough question. (laughs) In the early days, we didn't have a lot of employees. I had one partner and quite honestly, she would leave when it got too rough and she'd head back to Hawaii and (laughs) she did throw in the towel every time it got to be a little bit sticky or quite a bit sticky and difficult. So there were a lot of times where I wanted to quit because I was by myself and I was proverbially down and out. I was at rock bottom. I spent a lot of time on rock bottom crawling along, just trying to get another dollar, another bottle, another hit. And I think it was because I started to get feedback from the customers that were telling me how well they felt after being hydrated for the first time in most of all of their life. And That feedback really was fodder for my fire to keep me going. And as we grew, as Hydroflask started more and more sales, we got more and more money where we could start hiring real high quality people who had that mission. In the early days, though, it was just warm bodies. We would just go to Craigslist and find warm bodies, come in and do whatever they could do. But as we started growing and we could hire micro-specific people... That's when it got really fun and we really started taking off. Right. So you mentioned that there were times along the way where things got rough or challenging, right? Every entrepreneur has to be prepared for that. There's no straight ride to the top. It just doesn't work out there that way. There's always challenges, no matter what type of business, no matter what you're doing. Aside from your passion, what motivates you 
when times get hard and then even harder? What was the motivation there? I know you mentioned the fact that the feedback from the customer in terms of feeling hydrated. Was there more to that than just that keeping you motivated to push forward that you could share with our listeners who probably are facing challenges in their own businesses? I had a desire to save the planet, (laughs) as grandiose as that might sound. I grew up scuba diving and watching the degradation of the coral reefs all around the planet and watching, I mean, I've been fortunate enough that I put myself in a situation where I was able to travel and scuba dive and be in the oceans all over the place. And I started watching garbage and I started collect and compound and plastic washing up on the shores. And I thought, even if I could save a (laughs) hundred plastic water bottles from being out there. Like, wouldn't that be awesome? Even if I could find enough water bottles to give out to my friends and family and extended friends and extended family, and we could save that many plastic water bottles, like, gosh, wouldn't that be sweet? And Mm -hmm. the bigger it grew, I never, ever counted money (laughs) because money was never, ever the focus or the primary driver. But I did start to count how many plastic bottles we were preventing from going into the oceans. And that was the big driver. That was a big motivator. Because I would look at in the warehouse, I'd look at cases and cases and cases and pallets of these bottles and think, wow, this is metals. They're going to use these for years and years and years. This is not plastic. For like every one of these pallets, there's a hundred pallets that are not getting produced in plastic single-use bottles. How awesome is this? So that kept me going also. Did you keep a numerical tab on the equivalent of, hey, if we sell X number of hydroflat, this is the equivalent number of bottles? Do you have an idea of what that looks like over the history? Ironically enough, Forbes, I think, just came out not too long ago with an article where the current administration at Hydroflask has put a numerical value to it. And it was like, uh, I don't even want to quote it because I'm going to be way off. (laughs) Like millions of tons of plastic, I would say. Yeah. I agree with you. We were talking before we went on about fish tanks and whatnot. I love our coral. I love the fish. I love going to the Caribbean and just seeing it. It's amazing. So I appreciate what you've done and what Hydroflask continues to do because we definitely want to preserve that not only for the next generation, but many generations to come so they can experience and see the same thing that you and I have been able to see up until this point. And not for nothing, nothing. selfishly, I'd like to go see it again. You know, I don't want to just see it the one time. So you had significant growth. I mean, at one point, I think I read that you were growing at almost 600% per year. Per quarter. Oh, per quarter? Yeah. Per quarter. Okay. Even bigger numbers. So How do you potentially sustain that type of growth over time? And to use your terms, or whether it's airplanes or boats, keeping the ship upright or keeping the plane level, I guess. How do you continue to do that at that type of unbelievable growth? It's a bit of a balancing act. The bigger you get, the more responsibilities there are, the more people want to take shots at you, the more people you're beholden to the more families you have to take care of with more employees. And it was like walking a a tightrope sometimes and it felt unstable (laughs) a lot of times. (laughs) And other times it felt like I was walking on a very solid concrete platform and, hey man, we're good. Other times it got a little sketchy. 
the financial aspect of it was always very difficult. We had to pay for the bottles up front, typically 120 to 150 days before we actually got any kind of ROI return on that investment money back from the customer. So we had a lot of big bills to foot. We had to take on friends. And first, we self-financed credit cards and loans. Then we went to friends and family and tapped that out completely. And then we started taking on, I'll say angel investors, but I say that term very loosely. And then we started taking on bigger Series A rounds and funding it that way. So it took a lot of money. It took a lot of money to move it forward. And it took a lot of resources, a lot of good employees that helped out along the way is also. Yeah. So for those people who are listening that aren't used to manufacturing or retail type operations or businesses like you just discussed, for those people, what you hear on Shark Tank to some degree is correct. You have to be ready and prepared to have those lines of credit and the funds available to make sure that you can manufacture and get it from there to actually in the consumer's hands. And it's a little bit of a tightrope, I guess, as you grow, those financing numbers get bigger because you're putting in bigger orders. And then you got to rely on your salespeople to take care of those sales on the other end. So you could then take care of those lines of credit, right? Exactly. Bingo. Well said, Larry. Yep. Yeah. So listen, I want to shift gears for a minute because you talked about in your overview as far as where you got here that you negotiated your way out of at a high school, so to speak. And we talk here a lot of times with youngsters, college students who are looking to get into financial services, for example. And there's this educational piece out there that created this environment that says, oh, you go to high school, then from high school, you go to college, then depending on your field, maybe get an MBA or some kind of post college degree. Do you feel an MBA is necessary to start a business? What's your thoughts about that and this construct that's been created in terms of how you're supposed to go from grade school all the way up to maybe owning a business? The first time I ever heard the term gap year, I was in (laughs) Tahiti and I met some English girls who were on their gap year. They had graduated high school and and I was probably about 19. They were probably about 20. And they explained that they take a gap year in between high school and college. They usually travel the planet, go out there and find out who they are and what they really want to do. And then they go back and then they choose and then they go to school. And I remember thinking like, duh, like (laughs) we should all be doing Right. You know, like that's kind of what I am doing right now. I'm on my gap year. Of course, my gap year, I took about 10 of them <laughs> to 10 years <laughs> of gap, but I think a gap year is where it's at. Honestly, there's always caveats. I cannot just make a blanket statement to everybody. Like if you know what you want to do and you got that passion and it's driving right. you and you just can't wait to get to college because you can't wait to get done with college because you can't wait to do whatever it is that you need that degree to do, go do that. But if you're going into college because somebody is telling you that you got to go to college and you got to take that because, well, that just seems like the one to take, I would highly recommend a gap year in between. Come back and see if you even want to put that money towards college or an MBA. Perhaps you don't. Perhaps you want to go micro specifically and use that money towards another vocational type of program that will get you what you're looking for. So, I've never found it necessary for an MBA. I didn't even really know truthfully what an MBA was up until probably five years ago or so. It never really concerned me. Yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly about with almost with everything that you said. I mean, I have an 18-year-old that's in college now, 
And the school he's going to, one of the main reasons he's going there is because they have a co-op program. So over five years of school, which you only pay for four educationally wise, but it's going to take him five years to graduate. But during those five years, he's going to have three six-month externships or co-ops with companies in the fields that he's looking to work in. Oh, wow. He's going to come out with real life, real world examples of and figure out after company one, is this where I want to be within the corporate structure? If not, then co-op two, I'll figure something else out. I'll tweak it a little bit. And he gets paid during that time that he's working there as an employee. So for him, it was a great opportunity. And my younger son, we'll see. I mean, he's a hockey kid, so hockey's a little different. He might end up taking a couple gap years playing hockey somewhere. But I agree with you. Unless you're that driven, that focused, I think we've created this construct, which is a big issue with regard to why we are where we are with the college debt crisis. We've created this situation where not everybody has to go to college. Not everybody... Trade schools are clamoring for folks to go into the trades. It's really taking time to figure out where you want to be, what you want to do, and what's the track that's going to get you there and go that track, right? I was told that I needed to get my degree in aviation in order to fly for the airlines. And so I started taking online aviation courses from Utah Valley State. And as I was getting pretty close to finishing my bachelor's, I got hired by the airlines. That was the only reason that I was taking my degree. And so it was like, oh, now, wait a second. Why in the world would I finish this if I'm already at my desired goal? But the student debt that I had for that, I mean, that plagued me for years and years and years and years. And it made everything so much more difficult to get loans to start Hydroflask because I had so much student loans. So that's another big facet, like who and how is paying for this, you know, and Mm -hmm. how's that going to happen? And so that is another thing I would strongly advise looking at. Yeah. And it's funny because I just took part in a, like a mentoring night for the university I graduated from. And it was basically like a networking where virtually where people could pop into this virtual room, ask you questions. And one of the students asked me, they said they were like a sophomore or junior. I don't remember exactly. And they were asking me about the financial services industry and what my thoughts were. And they were like a philosophy major or something like that. And I said, oh, what's your interest in finance? Well, I'm going to be graduating soon. I'm not really sure what I'm going to be doing or what I'm going to be using this for. And I said, listen, what I'm going to tell you is going to go against popular demand and maybe even what your parents are saying or expecting from you. But I'm going to give you like I think you really need to hear it. I said, after this semester, take time off. Don't go back to school next semester and figure out what you want to do. Try different things. Explore. Until you figure that out, don't bother going back to school because you're just wasting your time, your parents' money, because you're just bumping along, not really knowing. I said, the university loves it because you're going to be there for four or five, maybe six years, and they're going to get a great revenue stream. But you really need to take that time off and figure out what you want to do so you could be a little bit more strategic about how you're going to make it to the next level. And she was like, oh, really? I don't know. My parents are going to go for that. But these are the things we're dealing with with 18, 19-year-olds, which is a challenge. So I want to talk to you a little bit about marketing. What's your approach to marketing? I've heard you have some unique ideas around that topic. So I wanted to share those with our listeners. I absolutely love marketing. 
I would say that guerrilla marketing is probably my jam. I really enjoy using the resources that we have, sometimes not a lot, sometimes a lot, depending on you know the stages of the company. But typically when I think of guerrilla marketing, I think of not a lot of resources and we have to shock and wow the whole world. And how do we do that? And for me, it's like this puzzle. It's like a map or a treasure hunt in my mind where I'm like, okay, how do we fully engage with the greatest number of people for the least amount of money to get the biggest, oh my goodness, what was that I just saw? Make it memorable. All that to say, I really like guerrilla marketing, Larry. (laughs) (laughs) The internet and obviously social media and the platforms available, has that made it easier over time, harder? What's your thoughts on that? A lot of the millennials that I talk to think that they're going to start a business and they're just going to advertise the Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and they're going to make these really phenomenal amazing go viral videos and everybody's going to buy their product. And then six months later, they're going, Travis, it didn't work. What do I do? And it's like, well, if everybody's trying to do that, then yeah, you're probably not going to be one of those top tier outliers. So I think I go back more to the brick and mortar approach. I still think that direct to retail sales are pertinent. And I think that if you can really get yourself into stores marketing to those shops and those employees that work there, I still think that that's really the best way to do sales, honestly, and to raise a grow a brand. I also look at marketing as a separate category than like branding or sales to say sales and marketing. For me, that's 117 different categories. There's <laughs> so many things under the word marketing that for me, it's like a big umbrella with multiple categories underneath of it. So I prefer to look at a business and the marketing segment. I'm not big on spreadsheets, but I kind of see it as a spreadsheet. Like here we have branding and everything that goes under branding. Here we have guerrilla marketing and how we can do that and how online digital marketing and all of that. So I kind of subcategorize, I guess. Nice. Okay. So the old school or the older school of getting those retailers on board and getting their salespeople to become raving fans and then push that and sell it to the customers that are coming in the store is really your preference, really. I was fortunate that I heard this. Someone told me that if you can kind of dominate one geographical area, then you're going to be okay. Because anybody in that geographical area who buys your product is going to take it outside of that geographical area for you. So my thought was always, well, if we could get a store location here, there, and over there, well, then we can help those employees get hydrated and feel better about themselves, feel good with the brand, and then they're going to help dominate their geographical region and then get it out. And sure enough, we found that that worked out to be a pretty good strategy. And then the customers could always make their own viral videos with, in essence, which will help you and you don't have to worry about being noise in a crowded space either. It's so much more authentic when they do also. It's one thing for me to say, oh, look how happy my customer is. But for the customer to say, look how happy I am as a customer, it's going to hold way more water. Yeah, I agree with you a thousand percent. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So listen, are there any mistakes that you made along the way that you wish you could have avoided or looking back now you could have avoided had you done something either educated or a mentor or something along those lines? We had a really good patented IP attorney and I'm very grateful for her. Her name is Michelle. And yet I also wish that we had had another really stellar attorney I probably could have brought in legal representation earlier on. And it was tough because we started about 2008, 2009, where nobody... Well, I shan't say nobody, but the majority of businesses were struggling. And the people running them and the people who owned them were struggling. And so there weren't a lot of mentors on hand. Right. But I do think that had I looked for and obtained a really good mentor, I could have been further steps ahead. Yeah. And were you saying in terms of the attorney, the legal representation, were you talking in terms of that there were organizations or people knocking off what you were doing or just legal representation to kind of help you navigate different events that the business were going through? The knockoffs were always bittersweet because... I mean, we had patents and if they violated the patent, it was pretty cut and dry. And that's just not nice. You know, please don't do that. Right. But at the same time, it was kind of like, how can I be upset with people who are also hydrating the planet? You know, and <laughs> how can I be upset with people who are saving plastic from the oceans? So that was always one of these bittersweet dichotomies bouncing around in my mind. But I think, especially with the exit, I should have had better legal representation, but also just throughout. We had a fairly okay attorney, but he maybe wasn't quite as aggressive or assertive as I would have kind of liked. And so I feel like it left us vulnerable to some, not maybe perhaps some nefarious activities and people who would come along. What I did not know is the bigger you get, the more people want to take shots at you. And right. it makes perfect sense now. It's like, yeah, duh. But sure enough, if you're in the paper for succeeding, people will want to come and extract some of that for themselves. So that was a bit of a bummer. Yeah, it's quite unfortunate, but I'm sure you took that knowledge and that education, put it in your front pocket now, and it's there for you to use as you move and do things on a go forward basis for sure. Much easier to see it nowadays. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Hindsight is so beautiful. Yes, it works out great, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm a startup, let's say I'm listening, I have an idea, I want to get started. How's the Tumalo Group help startups in particular? Obviously, bigger entities, I can see you guys helping them get perhaps to the next level, grow but what about a startup? Is it simply you just getting them from that back of the napkin, like you mentioned earlier, into an actual production phase? Or is there more to it than just simply that? Yeah, we really take startups at pretty much any phase. We do prefer that they're funded. We're not a funding or lending company. The back of the napkin works great. We have designers who can put it into CAD files and they can. you don't have to learn all that software they already have. And we can take those drawings and those designs and those files, and we can find a factory that's going to be the best fit. And we negotiate the minimum order quantity, the MOQ. We negotiate how much the per piece cost is going to be. We figure out what the mold costs are going to be to get the product produced. And we look at shipping and duties and tariffs and tax and, and all of that that's applicable. And we can get you a pretty good idea as to what it's going to cost to start a brand or start a company. Typically, I say it's about $100,000, but 
there's some wiggle room in there, but that's kind of a ballpark. Do you normally, meaning the Tumalo Group, do you guys normally charge those businesses like a consulting fee or do you take an ownership stake and have a vested interest in that business? How does that work? It's a hybrid, really. We have a fairly set schedule, a fee schedule that we go off of for different phases. We have about a four-phase go-to-market from pretty much wherever you are to in the customer's home, four phases. But then also, we have different advising packages as well. So it just kind of depends on who it is, where they are financially, and where they are down the road with starting the brand or business, or maybe it's already going and they're looking to pivot or change, kind of get back in touch with some more realities for whatever reason they've strayed away from. So it's really a case-by-case basis with a few structured tiers thrown in. Gotcha. So I only have a couple more and our time's going to come to an end soon, but I want to ask you this because you mentioned it earlier about retirement, right? You were thinking about retiring. You thought you were going to retire. So do you ever plan on retiring or what's your definition of retirement? Because that's something that I think everybody has a different definition of. I like to take my retirement in increments. <laughs> I work really hard for about four or five years. Then I take off for four or five years and go do something I find equally interesting, but perhaps not. Like I took off about five years and been cutting down trees. I think that eventually I will probably retire, but I sure hope not because I really enjoy doing what I'm doing. Yeah, I really <laughs> well, listen, yeah. there's a misconception, I think, to some degree, like we we're talking about the educational system, you know, this whole idea that you work, work, work until you're whatever, 65, 67, and the, all of a sudden you stop and there's this theory like you start enjoying life. I don't understand that. For me, it's like, I want to enjoy life all along the way. It doesn't mean I don't have to work. Because if I'm doing work that I don't enjoy, then I probably shouldn't be doing that to begin with. So I want to do something I enjoy until I don't enjoy it anymore. And then I'll move on to something else. But to me, retirement is the day, you know, when I wake up and I know that I don't have to go to work, I'm going there because I love it and I enjoy it. And I think you should enjoy life. It doesn't have to wait till you're 60 or 65 or whatever this retirement construct that we've set up. I don't agree with it. And it doesn't sound like you do either. So I don't know. I watched my grandpa retire at 60, whatever. And it was so completely underwhelming for me. <laughs> I always thought when he retired, like, you know, he'd be getting a sports car and they'd be going to travel to the planet and like there would just be money dripping from the fountains. And he bought a lazy boy and he bought a big screen TV and he sat down and he turned on the TV and he didn't really ever get up again. And I was like, oh my goodness. He just spent, I call it the 40-40-40 plan. He spent 40 years making $40,000 to retire in 40 years. And that's what he did. And it's like, dang, (laughs) (laughs) like that's all that you got. And so I was young enough to watch that happen and think, okay, well, there's definitely not the path that I'm going to take. I have not shown signs that I'm going down that path and I'm not ever going to be going down that path. There you go. I agree. And I'm sure most of our listeners agree with you. That's why they're listening to our show. So that's good too. So listen, Travis, it's been a pleasure having you on. And we end every show by asking each of our guests the same question, which is, what did you do today 
that brought you joy and put you in the right mindset for success. I knew you were going to ask me that. So <laughs> I wonder if it's okay if I break it up into two parts. Because 100%. We just built a new doghouse for the puppies. We've got some puppies. And one of the puppies, he's scared to go through the dog door. And so I spent <laughs> about 15 minutes showing him that it's safe to go through the door. And I realized like that brought me a lot of joy. I really enjoyed trying to teach it. And I dare say he didn't learn it, but he's still <laughs> by the doghouse. He hasn't come out yet, but it brought me a lot of joy. And then I showed up, you know, like I'm here. I put one step in front of the other, one foot in front of the other, and I'm plugging away. I'm hustling and I'm moving and grooving and making deals and I'm here. And so that's bringing me forward. Amazing. I love the dogs as uh, I could see how that could bring you joy. Maybe a little frustration at times, but a whole lot of joy when all said and done and they actually go through the doggy door finally for a prolonged period of time. I'm sure you'll be very happy. I can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) So listen, Travis, it's been a pleasure having you on and we're going to have all this information in the show notes. But if people want to learn more about you, about the Tumalo Group, what's the easiest way for them to do that? I'd say uh, info at tumalogroup.com is a good email and we can set up an appointment and go over whatever it is you want to go over. Awesome. Well, listen, I thank you for that. I thank you for your time. It's been a pleasure having you on and make it a great day. Thank you so much, Larry. You as well. I want to thank Captain Travis Rossback for being a guest on the Midland Money Mindset. Captain Rossback has taken his love for life, his values, and his success and is sharing it with others that are entrepreneurial and need guidance. Travis has taken the knowledge he has gained along the way during his impressive career and now is helping countless others reach their goals and dreams. What could be more rewarding than that? Travis and the Tumalo Group can be found across all social media platforms and all the contact information needed to find them can be found in the show notes. Thank you for joining us this week on the Midland Money Mindset. Make sure you visit our website at midlandmoneymindset.com and smash the subscribe button so you don't miss a show. We encourage you to help others find our valuable content and please don't keep us a secret. You can also schedule an Is There a Fit call right from our website or by using the link that you'll find in the description section of your podcast player or app. And be sure to join us for our next episode to learn more about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. The opinions voiced in the Midland Money Mindset Show with Lawrence Sprung are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. No strategy ensures success or protects against loss. To determine what may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, financial or tax advisor prior to investing. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC registered investment advisor. Guests on the Midland Money Mindset Show are not affiliated with CWM LLC.